This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by the 2021 all-new Ford Bronco Sport, a 4x4 SUV with seven available GOAT modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. But some of the most impressive elements are in the interior. My full name is Carrie Kennerly, and I'm a color and materials designer at Ford Motor Company. I've been here forever. (laughs) For Carrie, working on the Bronco Sport was a passion project. The chance to bring to life a legendary vehicle for a new generation. I'm born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, so automotive has always been in my family. Okay, so you are like true blue. Yes. (laughs) Yep. Members of Carrie's team went to great lengths to research design elements, camping out with off-road enthusiasts, and interviewing the kind of people that demand the most from their SUVs. The result are features like the available Moly straps for securing gear, a concept that was inspired by high-end backpacks, hiking boots, and technical jackets. A guy that was a photographer, he loved the idea of the Moly straps on the seat back because he said he could put his camera inside and then he could connect his lenses with just the hooks. But simply attaching straps to standard fabric on the back of the seatbacks would never do. So the fabric that is behind the Moly straps is actually a police-grade fabric that we put in police vehicles. Climb inside the Bronco Sport and you'll find a range of rugged features, like a safari-style roof and liftgate flood lamps for easier base camp setup. Learn more at Ford.com slash Bronco. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Among the many challenges that journalists face these days, one of the most frustrating is attracting an audience to your stories. This is especially true if you're reporting the kinds of hard-hitting pieces that we often scroll past as we look for something more entertaining. Which is why some of the most ambitious journalists have gotten very creative. The song you're listening to is part of the Outlaw Ocean Music Project, created by the journalist Ian Urbina. In 2019, he published a book, The Outlaw Ocean, chronicling what he witnessed during more than three years of traveling over 12,000 nautical miles across the world's oceans and seas. The book was an outgrowth of a multi-part series he reported for the New York Times that brought to light the rarely glimpsed communities of people that exist on what Ian has called the last untamed frontier. When people think of misbehavior at sea, they they think of Somali piracy or they think of the BP spill. But there are all these other activities out there, you know, gun running and murder and stealing of ships and dumping of oil, not spilling it and, you know, just on and on, not to mention illegal fishing. I wanted to go find those people and tell the stories from, from that space. The Outlaw Ocean was a hit, becoming a national bestseller, which only made Ian anxious to do more. There were so many stories to tell, and he wanted to reach an even bigger audience than he had with a major newspaper series and a best-selling book. It was that quest to reveal what's really happening out there, 
where no one is watching, that would lead Ian to take his work in directions he never could have predicted, and ultimately inspire the creation of a very unique collection of music. To understand how this happened, we need to strip away the song and start with the experience that's behind it. A spectacle that Ian witnessed during his very first offshore reporting for the outlaw ocean. In 2014, when Ian began working on his series for the New York Times, one of the places that he was most interested in investigating was the South China Sea, where he'd heard that debt bondage, a form of slavery, was rampant, especially among the Thai fishing fleet. There's this subcategory of ships that are the, the worst of, of the worst, and these are the distant water, water fishing fleets, meaning they go far, far from shore, they stay out at sea for sometimes two years, and they don't come back to shore. And mother ships, so supply vessels, bring ice and fuel and replacement parts and, and food and, and men. And they bring that out to the fishing vessels, and then they bring the fish back. And these transshipment vessels, these distant water ships, were the ones where the most notorious slavery conditions were said to exist. But no one had ever actually gotten on them. Ian partnered with British photographer Adam Dean. And with help from a talented young female translator named Oi, they began courting fishing boat captains in a large port town in southern Thailand. Our goal was to see if we could talk our way onto one of these boats and go out all the way, you know, two, three hundred miles from shore. And it took some doing. None of them were willing to take us out the full distance. Some were willing to take us out for legs of the trip, you know, 50 miles, and then they would agree to talk to the captain of the other ship and convince him to take us on board and take us out for another 50 miles. We had no idea of our end target except for a category of ship, one that's really far out there. And so we kind of were just thinking, well, hopscotch, if you will, until and if we got to the right kind of boat. The further out from shore we got, the easier things got, because those guys out there, they don't speak English, they don't care about the New York Times, never heard of it. They're not afraid of repercussions because they're in their own world. The guys closer to shore, the guys who actually come into port, they don't want to be seen with a Western journalist because word will get out and, and they'll pay the price. But the guys way far out, they didn't care. They, ju they were mostly just quizzical as to why the heck we would want to get on their boats. And we would just explain to them, we want to chronicle what life is like on these boats and, and for their workers. And they don't see themselves as doing anything wrong, even if they're administering pretty severe beatings and the conditions are horrific. That's just the world that they operate in. After bouncing between three different boats, they were roughly 120 miles from shore when they came across a 50-foot wooden fishing vessel packed with Cambodian laborers. When we approached this final boat, it didn't even look seaworthy. The wood was cracked and, and caked on with this strange black greenish goo. All the crew, some of whom are as young as 13, 14, and some of them, you know, old as 35, 40, all came to the edge of their boat as we approached, just wondering what we were doing. And I just remember seeing those guys and thinking, this is it, this is our boat. The captain kind of looked me up and down and then said, I've got a couple of rules if these guys are going to come on board. One is 
when I tell them to move, they move. I don't want them getting in the way of my workers. Number two is they can't photograph me and they can't photograph or say the name of my boat or my name. I want to remain anonymous, but you can interview the crew. And when I tell them it's time to get off, it's time to get off. Oh, and the last thing he said, I remember it was, they have to stay away from the dog. I remember that because that seemed to be the thing that mattered most to him. And there was this dog on board that had just had puppies. And this was a mean dog on good days. And she had puppies and she was especially grumpy. And the captain said she just routinely attacked people, even crew. And he was really worried that she was going to attack us. So we had to stay away from her at all costs. The ship had five Thai officers and about 40 crew members, all of whom had entered Thailand illegally with the help from traffickers who then sold their debt to the captain for around $200. Working off that debt meant staying on the boat as long as the captain decided they needed to be there. Most of them are barefoot. Most of them are wearing, you know, cut-off jeans and shorts. Some of them are shirtless. Some of them are wearing sleeveless undershirts. They're covered in fish guts and really dirty You know, they just look like the lost boys of some far-off place. The ship was a purse saner, which meant that it would trap fish in an enormous net. They would then be cinched at the top, like a purse. Purse saners often use powerful cranes to lift their catch aboard. But like many boats in the South China Sea, this one depended instead on cheap labor. They haven't mechanized, so they put the boys in the water when there's, you know, 10-foot swells, and they're swimming around manipulating the net to get it in the right shape and position so that it can do its job. The nets have these weights on them and these buoys, and if they get tangled in the wrong way, you can get pulled under. On board, there were dangers all over. It was very crowded. You know, everywhere you turn, there were guys. And when they weren't there, there was stuff. Big piles of nets and huge winch-like machinery that would be used to pull or push the nets. These are winches that are the size of a truck tire. If you don't know what you're doing, your finger can get tugged into the wrapping of the net, and the pressure is so great that it'll, it'll just sever your finger right away. You know, one of the boys was sort of showing me how he was missing some of his fingers and sort of showing how tough he was. All this on a ship that was in constant motion. You're, you're standing on a, on a surface that is essentially like an elevator, and it's going up three floors and down three floors at a pretty fast rate at all times. So it's always going up and down. And then imagine a funhouse floor that seesaws, you know, in weird ways. Now imagine that that floor is covered in this goo that makes it ice skating rink slippery. So it is a marvel that anyone can stay on their feet. And yet these guys do. They are true acrobats. And they're hustling around and they're handling those huge swinging arms and making sure their feet don't get stuck in the net because it's about to go over the side of the ship. Then add the hygienic situation. So rats and roaches to numbers that are mind-blowing. And the rats are scary just because if you get bitten, there's a really decent chance that you'll die on board because that captain's not taking anyone who's sick or has an infection back to shore. At one point, late at night, Ian Adam and their translator Oi noticed that the crew had disappeared from the deck. They figured 
They must be sleeping, having not slept themselves for some 50 hours at this point. They decided to join them, so they poked around until they found a small cave-like space at the back of the ship. You couldn't stand up in it. It was maybe three or four feet high at most. And they were all in there, and they were mostly asleep in these makeshift hammocks that were converted from nets. But they were only a foot above the ground. And I thought, well, that's kind of stupid. Why don't they just skip the hammock and lay on the ground? Adam and I sort of slid under two of these guys with oi between us. And, you know, literally their hindquarters were inches above me with all sorts of mystery liquids dripping on me. And we were kind of laying there almost coffin-esque, you know, hands on chest on, on our backs. And we fell asleep. And I don't know how long I was asleep, but I woke up with this surge of adrenaline that like something was terribly wrong. I sat up really quickly and hit the guy's ass above me and my helmet lamp went flying off. I scrambled, put it back on, turned on the lights. And lo and behold, I realized why these guys sleep in hammocks. And that is that when you're in a hammock, the rats don't mess with you, but they run the floor everywhere else. And especially at this quiet moment when everything has stopped, they come out in numbers I hadn't before seen. You know, like everywhere, just running across Oi, the translator, running across Adam. And I thought, this is terrible. We need to get out of here right away, but without panicking because we I don't know what rats do when they're in a group and you scare them. You know, so so I sort of woke up Adam and said, there are rats everywhere. We need to get out of here. We need to slide out carefully and quietly. And so we did just that and went to the highest point of the ship and sort of just sat there for a couple hours and tried to rest sitting in what we thought was a safer place. Not everything that Ian witnessed on the ship was a horror. Despite the conditions, or maybe because of them, the crew found ways to keep themselves going. In all of this gritty darkness, there is real humanity, humor, camaraderie, playfulness. These guys smile, they laugh, they flirt. And as Ian would experience, they chant. Not for fun, or to celebrate, or to worship, but to garner the energy they need to do their work. This fishing happens most intensely at night because you can best see the shiny silvery fish with the naked eye because of there's some spotlights on the water and the combination of it all causes them to be more reflective. At some point in the night, usually 2 a.m., there comes this moment when the climax of the whole work cycle arrives. I first realized we were about to enter it when I saw that a bunch of these guys were lining all up along the side of the ship and then some signal is given and they all grab the net that's sort of hanging over the side of the vessel and they begin pulling it. And it's brutal. I mean, you can just see the muscles in their back working and, and it's, it's this really powerful spectacle. It's like a industrial ballet that's unfolding in front of you and they would be chanting. <laughs> And what they're doing is they're chanting to ensure they have synchronicity so that they have the collective force to pull this impossibly heavy net out of the water. The minute the net is pulled far enough that they actually can start seeing the caught fish, you know, it's this shimmering, huge mass of silver 
And when the net is getting that shallow and you're seeing what they've reaped, these guys get even more intense and louder and the chanting gets stronger. It's just a powerful thing to witness. We'll be right back. At the top of the episode, we heard from Ford Motor Company designer Carrie Kennerly about the interior of the 2021 all-new Bronco Sport. As Carrie explains it, the design team made sure that every inch of the vehicle is crafted to inspire adventure. I am a mom and I have kids. We will go camping and we'll go bike riding and I've gone fishing and I want my vehicle to withstand to that. Meaning tough and rugged. Tough and rugged. This is the first vehicle that I've worked on that has had such aggressive rubber mats that are on the floor of the cargo area, but then they're also there on the on the seat back. I mean, it's it's great putting lumber or whatever. You don't have to worry about it. It's ready for it. The cargo area comfortably fits two 27.5-inch wheel mountain bikes. Then there's the available storage under the second row seats, which is ready to haul wet or muddy gear, or maybe a few surprises. You, yeah, you could put wet boots in there. I mean, if, if you have kids and things they find and want to bring home, things they collect, and you're like, okay, I guess we can take that with us, you don't really have to worry about it in a Bronco Sport. You can find a place to, to keep it. It's not going <laughs> to trash up and stink up the rest of your vehicle. <laughs> Learn more about how you can outfit the new Bronco Sport to fit your adventurous lifestyle at Ford.com slash Bronco. Ian Urbina's experiences in the South China Sea convinced him that the stories he'd find far from shore were even more surprising and revealing than he'd expected. I mean, I was hooked because I thought, wow, this was epic just getting there. You know, like I had to use more skills of scrappy ingenuity and of diplomacy and of, of endurance, physical endurance, just to get to this place. And then I got there and holy moly, it was otherworldly. And so I was like, okay, this is where I belong. Three years and a number of journeys later, he was embedded on a well-armed 117-foot Indonesian government ship called the Macan heading out to sea for what was supposed to be a routine patrol looking for foreign boats illegally fishing in Indonesian waters. The captain of the ship was an impressive character named Samson. This very famous captain who was kind of said to be the most agile and adept at finding the bad guys. He was pretty well respected because he'd been an industry fisherman for a long time. And he joked that the reason he knows how to catch pirates is because he used to be one. And he had these sort of superstitions. He wore what looked like a bear tooth around his neck and said that it sort of had magical powers. The Macan was patrolling an area of water where borders of several nations intersected and where Indonesian fisheries authorities claimed Vietnamese blue boats illegally fished inside their territory. The rickety wooden vessels usually have a crew of 7 to 12 men. Samson planned to take the crews into custody and bring them and their boats back to port in Indonesia, where they'd be held for an indefinite period. Roughly six hours into the patrol, Samson spotted targets on the radar. And soon after, 
the Macan was in pursuit of one of them. The minute it starts running, the adrenaline pumps because you're wondering how it is they're going to possibly get these guys to stop. You also don't know whether the other boat's armed, so you need to make sure you're mindful of where you're standing in case they open fire on you. Usually the Indonesians open fire on the Vietnamese boat with a, a handheld machine gun and usually across the bow as a warning. Even still, sometimes these guys wouldn't stop. And so the Machan would basically pull up adjacent to the Vietnamese vessel. And these Indonesian guys would then be poised to leap on board. And both vessels would still be in motion. And the Machan would essentially ride up next to it. And then when they were about to jump on board, the Machan would lean hard into the Vietnamese boat. So that would give a good three seconds of contact time when the guys could jump on board. And then they would run to the wheelhouse where the captain is and they'd rough him up a little bit. Over several hours, the Macan chased down five Vietnamese blueboats, arresting 55 fishermen. That, Samson decided, was all his 17 crew members could safely guard. So he headed home with five of his officers piloting the captured blue boats in a line behind him. And Samson hands the wheel over to his you know, chief mate and uh, decides to pour some hard alcohol, actually. And we're sitting around, and he's just sort of celebrating with a couple of his guys and us, and, and he sets the, one of the shots on fire. And right at that moment, Someone comes running from the bridge and says, there's an emergency, come now. They've taken one of the fisheries officers. So Samson you know, jumps up and runs to the bridge and the burning shot tips over and the flaming liquid sort of spreads across the table. And so we quickly put that out and then follow to the bridge to see what's going on. And essentially what had happened at that point was there was a panicked radio call coming in from the fisheries officer who was the last guy in the line. So he was a good mile, mile and a half behind this. And he was saying that he's being chased by the Vietnamese and a huge Vietnamese ship and that they are ramming him. So the Machan quickly pulls a U-turn and lo and behold, we quickly see on the horizon a huge ship, you know, good four times our size. And this is a Vietnamese big mounted guns Navy vessel that has, by the time we got there, already finished ramming the blue boat. There's no more audio coming across from the fisheries officer. And the blue boat that he was on is in the process of sinking. So we now have this standoff where you've got the huge Navy ship with its guns trained on us, and then you've got this sinking blue boat where the Indonesian officer might be dead or dying. It was a dangerous moment, made all the more tense, because the Vietnamese and Indonesian officers were shouting at each other over the radio in languages the other side didn't understand. The only person who spoke both languages was Ian's translator, who was a woman. And because these are conservative countries, both sides refused to have a female as the intermediary. Which meant that Ian had to play that role in a high-stakes game of telephone. His translator would translate what Sansom said to him, then he would radio that to the Vietnamese officer, who spoke some English. His man. Over.
let's not forget that we had 55 detainees on board. There was a sort of flat open area in the back of the ship and all of them were being kept there. They were not cuffed or anything. They were given water and they were all kind of carousing really for the most part. And when the Vietnamese Navy vessel showed up, it was actually a Coast Guard vessel, but it looked like a Navy vessel. The detainees just flipped, you know, they, they were screaming and cheering and, you know, just were thrilled by the power dynamic that had just reversed, essentially. And there was just one Indonesian guard in the back of the boat watching them because the rest of us were on the bridge trying to negotiate with the Vietnamese. At one point, I overheard splashes in the water. And the detainees were jumping overboard and were sort of attempting to doggy paddle their way through decently rough seas to over toward the Vietnamese ship, which made no sense because this was a steel-sided vessel that really you can't access. You need a ladder thrown over. There was no easy way to get there to get on board. And so instead, these guys were ending up halfway between us and the Vietnamese ship, and they were clinging to what little of the sinking Vietnamese fishing boat was still sticking above water. And some of them, for reasons I still don't know, some of the, several of the Vietnamese guys had taken off all their clothes so they were buck naked. So it was just this crazy, bizarre, panic-stricken scene where you had half-naked guys swimming, some of whom looked like they actually didn't know how to swim. Luckily, those who couldn't swim quickly turned back, climbed back on board our ship. We ended up with about 11 detainees left on our ship. Meanwhile, the negotiations continued, and the Vietnamese officer said something to Ian over the radio that disturbed him. The Macan, the officer insisted, had illegally arrested the fishermen, who had actually been in Vietnamese territory. I suddenly had this crisis moment where I thought, oh dear, we're actually in someone else's waters and we're going to pay a heavy price for it. And after said, hey, Samson, the, the Vietnamese are saying we are not in Indonesian waters and that those guys were illegally arrested. Are you sure? And he pulled out a map and on that map, we were clearly in Indonesian waters. So I thought, well, this is really strange, but maybe, I don't know, maybe the Vietnamese were just lying to me. It was only much later when I got back to shore that I double-checked on our coordinates and I got in touch with some Navy folks. Said, you know, could you walk me through? This is where we were in the water. Were we in Indonesian waters or Vietnamese waters? And they said, ah, you were in neither. You were in contested waters. Vietnamese says it's theirs. Indonesia says it's theirs. And it did sort of highlight this funny notion that, you know, we there is no oceans, plural. There's just one ocean overlaying these borders onto the that body of water that flows all over the earth is a sort of man-made construct right and the fish don't abide by borders and the fishermen for centuries haven't abided by borders they're just following where the fish go and they don't really tend to pay attention to where exactly that line is between vietnam and indonesia it only matters when guys with guns show up you know and if the guys with guns are on your side you're all right if the guys with guns aren't you might be in for a bit of a ride as the minutes clicked by the negotiations grew increasingly tense the vietnamese officer wouldn't say if samson's man was on the sinking blue boat or if they had captured him Samson's getting extremely worked up and he tells his men to go load up the mounted gun. And so I'm watching them load this 
heavy artillery gun and aim it at the Vietnamese who have far bigger guns already loaded and aimed at us. And I'm thinking, we're going to get lit up. Like literally that ship will shred this fiberglass vessel. And if we fire first, it's over. Eventually, the Vietnamese explained that they had indeed captured Samson's crew member. They brought him up to their bridge so that Samson could see him with binoculars. Now jump 10 minutes later and an officer comes running in and he says, we have a problem. We've got inbound and and we go look at this other radar and we have two huge blips heading towards us. These blips are big ships and they're coming fast. And what we realize is that the Vietnamese were stalling and they were bringing in other ships, most likely for the, with the intention of arresting us all. Samson had little choice but to leave his man behind, especially after his superiors in Jakarta relayed a stern order to retreat. As the Macan fled, Ian did what journalists do. He sat down and he wrote notes about everything he'd seen and heard. He also leaned on a habit that he'd developed years before, whenever he struggled to describe a particularly intense experience. He listened to music that helped him access feelings that felt true to the moment. How can I really take readers here to not just the sights and sounds and words and explanation and systemic forces, but also, like, the emotions of the place. As we ran away from the Vietnamese, there was this sort of shame and silence and sort of heaviness on the bridge that was both scared and angry and embarrassed. That night, I used a couple of songs in my notes to help me remember later on what those feelings were like. And that was one of the reporting moments when I, when I really thought, I should do something more with this whole thing, which is music as journalism, music as narrative, music as a receptacle for emotions. You know, I feel like there's something that could be done that's sort of creative with it that could help disseminate the journalism even more effectively. After The Outlaw Ocean was published, Ian made a bold and rather unusual career choice. Instead of being a staff writer at a media outlet like the New York Times or freelancing for multiple outlets in the usual way, he'd create a nonprofit with the singular goal of producing investigative stories about environmental, human rights, and labor abuses at sea. And it worked. Today, The Outlaw Ocean Project publishes stories in top-tier outlets around the world, often without charging a fee. Their funding comes from a combination of donations and subscriptions to a monthly newsletter. If that's not ambitious enough, they also strive to convert their reporting into other narrative formats, everything from educational games to graphic novels to documentary films. It's that effort that created the Outlaw Ocean Music Project. It began as an experiment. Ian would see if he could find artists interested in crafting songs based on his reporting and utilizing the archives of sounds that he and others had captured at sea. So machine gunfire in Somalia or chanting Cambodian deckhands on the South China Sea or Secretary of State John Kerry giving a speech at the UN. And we would approach the musician and say, I got a crazy idea. I'm this journalist, I'm not a musician. I want you to make a five-track album based on the book.
I'll give you the book, you read it. If it grabs you, if you think it's compelling, then you'd make an album based on the characters or scenes or chapters that really move you. You'd pull elements from the sound archive that really help you give some texture and sense of place to the music. Um, and we would publish it on 200 plus digital platforms, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Play, what have you. Any revenue that's made from the streaming of that music, 50% goes back to you, the musician, and 50% goes to the nonprofit to fund more of this journalism. We thought it would be maybe three or four people. We'd have to hit like 100 people and maybe five of them would say yes. And lo and behold, you know, we have 490 artists from hip hop, classical, electronic, every genre you can imagine from 80 different countries. Every month we publish you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 albums. It's this gateway drug, if you will, you know, from an attention span point of view, whereby, you know, people that wouldn't otherwise ever look at this book or hear about our website or read these stories, but they do consume the music of that artist and they click over to the video and they click from the video to the article and uh, lo and behold, they're reading the stories. And that's part of the, the conceit, if you will. That's the play. It's the old give them some ice cream so that they're interested in the broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Ian Urbina is the executive editor of the Outlaw Ocean Project, a nonprofit journalism organization based in Washington, D.C. Go to theoutlawocean.com to learn more about their work, including Ian's book and the Outlaw Ocean Music Project. You can subscribe to Ian's newsletter at theoutlawocean.substack.com. This episode was produced by me, Michael Roberts. Original musical scoring is by Louis Weeks. We played two tracks from the Outlaw Ocean Music Project, The Chanting to the Void by Himuro Yoshiteru and Fluid Borders by Hugo Kant. This episode was brought to you by the all-new 2021 Ford Bronco Sport, a 4x4 SUV with seven available GOAT modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. Learn more at Ford.com Bronco.